all look so good. Yeah, I never get tired of walking out and looking at, at looking at you guys. You probably get tired looking the other way, but I love looking at you. You can see VBS is like starts Monday. Isn't that great? Thank you for being here on, a, on an amazingly beautiful summer night. I have a question. Have you ever thought about writing a book about your life? Have you ever thought about telling your life story in a book? If you did, would your book be a comedy or a tragedy? Would, you, would your life story be an exciting page turner? Or would it be like the ideal bedtime story because it puts the reader right to sleep? I'm going to tell you, your story would be the former. Your story would be fascinating, and I'll tell you why. Because of what God has been doing in your life, and even long before you were born. Think about the countless details, situations, people, circumstances, things that look like accidents, things that look insignificant that God has done to lead you where he knows you need to be today and who you need to be. That would be fascinating to read. And I think no book in the Bible shows us any more clearly the, the, the invisible hand of God working in circumstances in the book of Esther that we have the privilege of getting to start tonight. I hope you're ready for a, an amazing summer of edge-of-your-seat storytelling from the Word of God. The, Esther, the book of Esther, the story of Esther is not only one of the greatest stories in the Bible. I would say it's one of the greatest stories in the world. And I hope you're ready to jump in. But before we do, let's pray. Father, what a privilege to come to your house. We're excited about VBS. We're just a, we're, we want to put our servants and the children that come into your loving hands. And we know you'll just bless them. And we pray for safety and, and real uh, truth uh, to be learned and enjoyed this week. And tonight, Father, we come. And, and in a group this size, some of us maybe are here feeling really good. And we're just here to praise you. Others of us might have had a pretty hard week. Maybe we're here searching for a truth, searching to see you and find you in a way that we desperately need. So, Father, I pray you would touch each one here. Open our eyes to see things in ways we've never seen before. Open our ears to hear your voice as we've never heard it before. Open our minds just to understand your invisible power in our lives, we pray. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please. Open your Bible or activate your digital devices to the Old Testament book of Esther. How many of you read the book of Esther in one sitting? Look at those hands. That is fantastic. Over half. You love it? Did you love it? I mean, it's, it's yeah. I wasn't exaggerating. It's good. If you, if you didn't get a chance to read it, it's okay. You know what you can do? You can read it tonight. You can read it tomorrow. You don't get to raise your hand in church to say you read it, but you get to read it. Tonight, we're going to do an overview of the entire book, and then we're going to go all the way through chapter one. But don't worry, the next three hours are going to fly by. <laughs> the book of Esther gets its name from the hero of the story. Esther is a beautiful, smart, young Jewish orphan that lives in Persia. So why is Esther in Persia 
instead of in Israel. If you were with us when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, then you remember the Jewish people had lived in disobedience to God for so long, the Lord finally punished them by sending King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in to destroy Jerusalem and carry off the Jews in exile and captivity to Babylon. And the Jewish exile lasted 70 years. And during this 70-year period of exile, the Babylonians got conquered by the Persians. So Esther was born in Persia after the 70-year period of captivity was over. For context, let's look at the four um, Persian kings. We have four Persian kings we're going to look at. In a moment. There they are. You have to wait for it. It builds... You know, for the king is coming, it's good to have a pause of reverence before you see the king. We read about King Cyrus in the book of Ezra. Cyrus was the one that allowed Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel? He led the first group of exiles back to Jerusalem to restore the temple. So we read about him. Then came King Darius, who ruled the Persian Empire at its peak. Darius also appears in the book of Ezra. We read about Darius when the enemies of the Jews in Jerusalem thought they would interfere with the temple building. <laughs> so, King Darius made a law, and the law said this, if anyone attempts to interfere with the Jews' temple project, that person will be impaled on a beam from their house, and that man's house will be reduced to a pile of rubble. So guess what? We shouldn't be surprised that the temple was completed successfully during King Darius's reign. Then came King Ahasuerus. He's on the throne during Esther's time. In fact, Esther will marry this king and become queen of the Persian Empire. And then King Artaxerxes. We read about King Artaxerxes in the book of Ezra at the end and also in the book of Nehemiah. King Artaxerxes allowed the second group of exiles led by Ezra to return to Jerusalem to restore temple worship, if you remember that. And then later he allowed uh, Nehemiah to lead a third group of exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. So when we put these books together, it's great. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us what happened to the Jews that went back to Jerusalem, while Esther gives us the fascinating story of what happened to the Jews that chose to remain behind in Persia. Here's the theme. We'll put this on the screen for you. The theme and the purpose. The theme of the book of, the, of Esther is the faithfulness or the provision of God. The story of Esther shows us that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises, and the evil that is in the world cannot stop God's loving plan for his people. I know we think sometimes it looks like evil is winning. They're not. The purpose of the book of Ezra is to demonstrate God's sovereignty in all of our circumstances. Sovereignty means God is completely in charge of everything. The Lord can use the most unlikely people, the most unlikely events, things that seem insignificant, coincidental, and totally accidental. God uses those things to accomplish his perfect plan in your life and my life. The author of this book is unknown. Possible authors are Mordecai, that's Esther's cousin that has a big part of this story. So perhaps Mordecai wrote the story, or it could have been written by Ezra or Nehemiah. Whoever the author was, he had detailed knowledge of Persian customs, etiquette, and culture, as well as an intimate knowledge of Hebrew customs and culture. 
The story of Esther ends about 465 years before Jesus was born. Esther is the last book in what is called the history section of the Old Testament, the history books. The 12 history books of the Old Testament are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These 12 history books give us in vivid detail the history of God's people, and they show the incredible blessings that the people received when they obeyed God, and also the devastating results of living in disobedience to God. Can I have that next slide about history? History really is his story. And God continues. God continues to write history. God continues to write his story in your life and in my life. Whenever you feel scared or worried or you have doubts, think back on your history with the Lord. Remember the things God has done for you in the past. It will greatly encourage you to trust him in the present and future. If you like Bible trivia, I am terrible at Bible trivia, but I wrote it all down so I can see it. If you like Bible trivia, here are a few fun facts about the book of Esther. There are only two books in the entire Bible that are named after women, Ruth and Esther. Ruth is the story of a Gentile that marries a Jew, and Esther is the story of a Jew that marries a Gentile. Jews today consider Esther to be one of the most important books in the Bible. They, the Jews read the book of Esther every year at the annual festival of Purim. And Purim is the, uh, was established at the end of the book of Esther that we'll see when we get there. The book of Esther is not quoted in the New Testament. Neither is the song of Solomon, Obadiah, or Nahum. This doesn't mean that these books are unimportant and we should skip them. It just means that the Holy Spirit chose not to quote these books as he was leading the New Testament writers. Esther shares a similar storyline with Exodus. In both Esther and Exodus, a foreign power tries to wipe out the Jewish race. But God intervenes to preserve his people, just as he promised in his covenant or contract with Abraham. And the book of Esther is most famous for one fact that you're probably well aware of. God's name is not mentioned in any verse. This is also true of the Song of Solomon. God's name may not be mentioned, but the Lord is so obviously working through every detail in this story. Let me give you three quick examples, but there are hundreds in this story. Today, we'll see how God works through the king's heavy drinking and bad temper. Later in the book, we'll see how God arranges the coincidence of where Mordecai just happens to sit in the city gate, so he just happens to overhear a plot to kill the king. And later in the book, we'll see how God uses the king's insomnia to save the Jews in Persia. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the story of Esther is full of divine intervention. So this book is really going to challenge you, and it's really going to challenge me to see if we can see God's work in our own lives. So let me ask you, when you look at your circumstances today, when you look at your circumstances, the good stuff and the bad stuff, what do you see? Can, can you see God at work? Or can you mostly just see your circumstances? 
as if what you're going through has very little to do with God and more to do with coincidence or luck or fate. Here's another question, a little tougher. When you and I look at our circumstances, do we believe God knows what he's doing in our lives? Do we believe, really believe God knows what he's doing in our lives? It's easy to say, yes, yes, of course, I believe God knows what he's doing. But when something bad happens, our trust in God is put to the test, isn't it? When something bad happens, we often discover it's easier to be a talker than a truster. It's easier to say, I trust you, Lord, with everything until something bad happens. Our disappointment and troubles can really make us doubt God, and our difficulties can really make us take our eyes off of God. But God has told us, he's told you, and he's told me the truth about all the things that happen to us. What is the truth about all the things that happen to you and all the things that happen to me? Romans 8, 28, it'll be on the screen. You know this verse, but look at it again. It says, and we know. We know what? We know that God, what does God do? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How can you and I see the invisible hand of God? It's invisible. How can we see it? We need eyes of faith. We need eyes of faith. We need to trust what God has said. Because God has told us in his word the truth about all of our circumstances. He has told us in his word that he has complete power in our circumstances and complete power over our circumstances. In and over. The Lord has promised us that all the things that happen, even the annoying things, everything that happens is under his control. And he is causing all things to miraculously work together for our good as we love and we follow him. You know, a wonderful thing happens to you and me when we learn. It's a learning process, but a wonderful thing happens when you and I learn to see God's hand, when we learn to really trust God's love, wisdom, power, and timing in every situation. You know what happens to us? Our weak faith becomes really strong. Frustration. Frustration is replaced by peace. And worry? Worry? It's replaced by hope. As many, maybe all of you know, I've been dealing with cancer for two years. Cancer is not an easy road, but it is a blessed road. It's a blessed road when you keep your eyes on the Lord and see him doing things in your life you never could have imagined. It's a blessed road when you take every step with Jesus and when you're too weak to walk, he carries you. It's a blessed road when you're so sure that God is in charge of everything, that you can trust him with anything. When you're so sure God is in charge of everything, you can trust him with anything. So I'm at peace. Even when my luscious long hair fell out. You know, I sure get ready faster in the morning now. It's like the Lord has given me an extra 20 to 30 minutes every day 
that I get to use for something that doesn't involve a hairdryer, mousse, and styling spray. It's great. My dear brothers and sisters, we have a decision to make. And here's the decision. Let's not read the book of Esther and think, wow, the Lord sure knew what he was doing in Esther's life. Instead, let's read this book together and realize God knows exactly what he's doing in your life and in my life. Let's decide. Let's decide that we're going to trust him completely in every situation, even the irritating situations, even the stupid situations, even the scary situations. The story of Esther is a story of courage, faith, betrayal, and good triumphing over evil. It really does read like a movie script. So with that in mind, here's the plot. Here's the plot of this movie. God takes a young orphan girl and causes her to become queen of the Persian Empire to save the Jewish people from destruction. What a plot. Let's look at the cast. Here's Esther. I'm sure that's exactly what she looked like. <laughs> Esther is our hero. The name Esther is her Persian name. Esther means morning star, the star that keeps shining after all the other stars in the sky have stopped twinkling. Esther was very beautiful, so maybe that's how she got that name. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle, a branch that signifies peace and thanksgiving to the Jewish people. So our leading lady is God's shining star that brings peace and thanksgiving to God's people. Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's co-star, co and he's Esther's much older cousin. He's a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin and likely a descendant of King Saul. Mordecai raised Esther, remember she was an orphan, Mordecai raised Esther like his own daughter. Here's Haman. Haman is the evil villain. Can't you tell by looking at him? <laughs> Haman is a very, very dangerous Persian high official whose goal is to destroy Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews. So why does Haman hate the Jews so much? Well, it just so happens that Esther has an amazing backstory. Would you like to hear the amazing backstory of Esther? Of course you do. Haman is an Agagite. Haman is an Agagite. That means he's a descendant of King Ahag, Agag of the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are lo were longtime enemies of Israel. The hatred started about a thousand years before Esther was even born. After the Jews made their exodus from Egypt, they were attacked by the Amalekites. If you remember the story, I'm sure you teach it, um, Moses sent Joshua out to fight against the Amalekites, and then Moses went up on top of a hill to overlook the battle, and he held out the staff that God had given him. And as long as Moses held the staff up, the Israel army prevailed. But as, as Moses' arms got tired and the staff started to drop, the Amalekites prevailed. So, so uh, Moses' brother Aaron and a man named Hur came on each side of Moses and propped him up so he could hold up that rod until sunset when the Israel won the battle. About 500 years later, God told Saul, that's Mordecai's ancestor, to wipe out the Amalekites and kill King Agag. That's Haman's ancestor. Saul, he wasn't having it. He did not obey. 
he let Agag live. So the prophet named Samuel took a sword and cut Agag into pieces. That's Haman's ancestor. So Haman obviously carries a deep hatred for all Jews, and Mordecai doesn't care much for the descendants of Agag either. This may be why we'll see in later chapters, Mordecai refuses to bow down in front of Haman, and that causes all kinds of trouble for Haman. One more person to look at in our story, King Ahasuerus. He's the other key character in our story. He's called Xerxes in secular history. That's his Greek name. King Ahasuerus was a Persian warrior. He was a womanizer, and he was a drinker. He was known for lavish parties and quick reactionary temper. The story of Esther has two other key characters that remain off screen. They're invisible, and their names do not appear in the cast credits, but they are the central focus of this story. They are God and Satan. We're going to see Satan move Haman around like a chess piece as he tries to defeat God. But just when Haman thinks he's got checkmate, just as Satan thinks he's got checkmate, God causes Satan's diabolical scheme to totally backfire. Instead of the Jews being destroyed, that was Satan's plan, the Jews become strong, protected, and rewarded throughout the entire empire. That's God's plan. Let's look at the outline for the book of Esther, then we'll cover chapter 1. We'll see Esther become queen in the first two chapters. Then the bulk of the story deals with this feud between Mordecai and Haman. And ultimately, we'll see God save Israel at the end. If you haven't read it, please go home and read it. You won't be sorry. It takes about 40 minutes, maybe. If you're a slow reader, 41 minutes. <laughs> Esther chapter 1. Let's read Esther chapter 1 together. We're going to take it a few verses at a time, okay, just to let the story unfold kind of like, like a story should. Verses 1 and 2, Esther chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. Let's stop there. King Ahasuerus inherited the huge Persian empire from his father Darius. Here's a picture of the a map of the Persian Empire. The orange is the Persian Empire. It was massive. It was the world's largest empire that anyone had ever seen at this time. It covered three continents, Asia and Africa and Europe. It's massive. History will show that the Persian Empire will lose all those 127 provinces just about as fast as it got them. But this is how it goes with kingdoms of the world, right? They rise and fall. They flourish and they fail. Only Christ's kingdom remains forever. The setting for the story is the citadel in Susa. Citadel means fortress, palace, and Susa is the winter capital of the king, who is located in modern-day Iran. Have you ever thrown a party? Have you ever thrown a party? Let's see how your party compares to the king's party. Let's read on, verses 3 to 9. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants. The army officers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of his provinces, being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for days, many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns. <clears throat> Couches of gold and silver were on mosaic pavement. The pavement had porphyry. I had to look that up. Porphyry is a reddish stone with crystal in it. So the pavement had porphyry, crystal, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. All right, so the king held a banquet in an open house for all the leaders and soldiers in his kingdom, and it went on for 180 days. It's unclear if the banquet itself went on for 180 days or if perhaps nobles from one province came one day and then nobles from another province came another day and so on during this six-month window of showcase. It's also possible that the banquet men mentioned in verse 3 is the same banquet mentioned in verse 5. Either way, either way, it was a really tough time to be on a diet in Persia. The guest list is really important for us to note because the king invited the nobles, the princes, and these army officers. Historians believe that this banquet took place just a few years before Ahasuerus invaded Greece. He was planning this invasion of Greece, an invasion actually that wouldn't go very well. But the king wanted to make sure all his princes and all his army officers had all these days, months and months, to get a real good long look at all his wealth so they were sure that the king could pay them well for going to war. So what did the king do after his six-month open house ended? He had another banquet. lasted just a week. <clears throat> I can't help but think of this. Can you imagine the noise? Imagine the noise with all those people in the king's courtyard for a week? It reminds me of the week I spent in New Orleans. I spent a week in New Orleans where my room overlooked a really busy bar. It was across the street. It was a big, wide street, and the bar was way across the street, but at night it sounded like the bar was right under my window. It was really hard to sleep. And right around 2 or 3 in the morning, I guess it was, that's when the bar finally closed, and it finally got quiet. But that's when they decided it was the perfect time to empty all their beer bottles into the metal dumpster. <laughs> that, was, that was a long week. I got very little sleep. I probably just like the people in Sousa during this week. Want to see something funny? Of course you do. Look at verse 6. This is funny. He says, there were hangings of fine white and violet linen. Do you see that, verse 6? In the ancient Hebrew, the white material is literally not described as white linen. In the Hebrew, it's described as white stuff. White stuff. Clearly, the book of Esther was written with a man's eye for decorating detail. <laughs> Only a man would write, yeah, there was some white stuff hanging up there. You know? Isn't that great? The guy got all the concrete stuff, all the precious metals. He got that right, but yeah, and white stuff. In verse 8, you notice that the drinking was done and according to the law, there was no compulsion. This is important because in ancient times, everyone was obligated to take a drink every time somebody toasted the king, which was constantly. The ancient etiquette said, you either take a drink with the king or you leave the party. At this feast, though, King Ahasuerus allowed everyone to drink as much or as little as they wanted. I think this was probably, he was probably glad to see people drink less because he certainly wanted to consume more, as we will see. 
And verse 9 tells us there was a separate feast for the women in the palace, and it was hosted by Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti is the one who gave birth to Artaxerxes, who would later succeed King Ahasuerus on the throne. But Queen Vashti is about to get in really bad trouble. And this will set into motion a series of events that will lead to the salvation of God's people. Let's read on, verses 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was hammered. I added that, but that's what that means. He was, he was merry with wine. He commanded Mehuman, Bitztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Carcass, that's an unfortunate name. <laughs> if I had to pick from that list, that would be my last choice. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Hahazurus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the queen's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. At the end of the seven-day feast, the intoxicated king decided there was one more item he wanted to show off to all the men at his party. He wanted his trophy wife, Queen Vashti. But this gorgeous queen refused to come. The Bible doesn't tell us why she chose not to come. Maybe the king's request was shameful. Maybe she was too modest. Maybe she was in a really bad mood. Maybe she was sick. Don't know. But the thing is, we do need to know is women of this time were just considered maybe a step above a slave. Women had very few rights in this kingdom. So for the queen to disobey the king was absolutely unheard of. And to make matters worse, Queen Vashti disobeyed the king in front of everyone at this party. So King Ahasuerus got royally upset. But God, but God uses this king's drunken rage to ultimately save the Jews from annihilation. It's amazing what God uses. God is already, if you know this story, God is already putting things in place to foil Haman's evil plan before Haman even has that plan in his head. Our faithful God is always working for our good long before you and I even have a clue what he's doing. God is always working for your good and my good long before we have any idea what he's up to to help us. Let's read verse 13 to 15. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew the law and justice and were close to him, Karshanah, Shether, Admathah, Tarshish, Maris, Marsanah, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. The king consulted with his best lawyers who have very hard to pronounce names. How would you like to answer the phone for that law firm? The king wanted to know what law the queen had broken so he could throw the book at her. Well, the consultants had a very quick answer for the king. Let's read the consultants' answer. The lawyers gave an answer in verses 16 to 18. In the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. 
This day, the, lady, the, the ladies of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. I love that. There's going to be plenty of contempt and anger coming. The, the king's advisors knew that if the queen went unpunished, they were doomed, because her example was going to cause all the women in the entire, that big map you saw, all those ladies were going to start to rebel, and they didn't want to see that. But the king had asked, what law did the queen disobey? And the problem was, there was no Persian law to punish the queen because that had never come up before. So we're now we're going to see the advisors give the advice to the king. Hey, king, why don't you pass your own law? That's the ticket. Make your own law. So let's read 19 to 21. Oh, this is so... This is a yes man here. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea so that it cannot be repealed. Pay attention to that. We're going to come back to that. It cannot be repealed. That Vashti, <coughs> Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. The king took their advice, and he made a law, he made a law to punish his wife. History shows that Ahasuerus was very reactionary. He, had, he made stupid laws. One historian notes that um, the king executed all the builders of a bridge because an ocean storm destroyed it. That historian notes that he also gave orders for the men to take chains and beat the ocean for their part in the... You saw in verse 19 that the king's decree cannot be repealed. This is how Persian law worked. This, was a, this is how Persian law worked. Once a law was made, it could not be revoked. This rule of law is going to become a very important factor that God will use for his purpose as the story unfolds. Last verse, verse 22. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. The last part of verse 22 in the New Living Translation goes like this. The king sent letters to all the provinces to declare that every man should be the ruler of his house and should say whatever he pleases. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> Men make a terrible mistake when they try to demand respect from their wives. If respect isn't earned by the husband and given freely by the wife, it isn't worth anything. The Persians had sort of a pony expressway to get news out. They had uh, a network of riders on horseback that could go through the kingdom very quickly to get important letters to the empire. So chapter one ends with the king thinking he's in charge. The king's really making things happen. He's throwing his weight around. He's a mover and he's a shaker. But what was really happening, what was really happening was God was providing a way for Esther to wear, to wear the queen's crown. How did Esther get the crown? 
You've got to come back next week. Find out. Or you can read it for yourself when you get home. In chapter 1, we saw how God worked through all kinds of people, situations, and circumstances every step of the way to accomplish his perfect will. God worked through the pagan king. He worked through the beautiful queen. God worked through the eunuchs. God worked through the lawyers. The Lord worked through the banquet. The Lord worked through the culture. And the Lord worked through the Persian legal system. Clearly, clearly God is in control. That should really comfort you and me if our life is complicated. God is in control. The Lord works in history. The Lord works in history to prepare the way for his people. Then the Lord works in the present to lead and guide his people. You know, in the Bible, we sometimes see God perform miracles that are witnessed by a lot of people, like the parting of the Red Sea. That was big. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That was big. But the book of Esther shows us, like most other places in the Bible show us, that God works invisibly in our lives to do something just as miraculous. He uses these seemingly unimportant circumstances and situations to cause us to become the man or woman he created us to be. Chapter 1 helps us understand the invisible nature of God. And there's only one way we can see our invisible God, and that is through the eyes of faith. And our eyes are and, uh, the eyes of our faith are sharpened by reading his word and trusting what he has said. Reading it and trusting it. So chapter 1 leaves you and me with a challenge. It'll be on the screen. This is our challenge. Are we going to look for God in our circumstances? Just starting today, on the rest of the rest of the day, are we going to look for God in our circumstances? Are we actually going to look for God even in the irritating, frustrating, nitpicky, ugly, scary, sad circumstances? Are we going to trust that God knows what he's doing in our life? No matter what happens this week, next week, the week after, are we going to trust that God really knows what he's doing so we're okay? Are we going to believe? Are we going to actually believe that God is causing everything to work together for our good? Everything to work for our good as we follow him and love him. If your answer is yes to each of these questions, you're going to start a new chapter in your story, in that book of your life. Instead of being a person that gets overwhelmed by your circumstances, you're going to be a person that gets overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God as he starts to work in your life in ways I promise you, you cannot even imagine. Chris, why don't you come back up? Uh, we're going to close in prayer and then we'll have one more song of praise. And our prayer team will be over here to pray with you if you would like to pray about anything or everything, anything you want to place into God's hands at the end of the service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Esther. Thank you for her story. And Father, thank you for the story that you're writing in each of our lives. Lord, I pray that each one of us will look for you in our circumstances more than we ever have before. 
I pray that we will put our complete confidence, our complete confidence in your love, in your wisdom, in your power, and maybe most difficult of all, Lord, we'll put confidence in your timing in all things. Thank you for causing everything you allow into our lives to work for our good as we love and serve you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.